Hey, this is Todd Stacy and Mary Sell. Welcome to In the Weeds with Alabama Daily News. Mary, we've we finally managed to get our special guest on. It's we've 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 fumbled the football a few times on this, me especially. Uh, well, we're we getting are, it done. <laughs> we are pleased this week to be joined by Lieutenant Governor Will Ainsworth. Uh, Mr. Ainsworth, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, Todd, Mary, great to be on. Uh, appreciate everything uh, y'all do for our state and getting. Um, good reports out there and let people know what's going on in the state and yeah excited to be on the podcast well, well good thank you for being here well first things first um you have had a lot to say recently about infrastructure specifically interstate 65 um and we talked about this a little bit down in point clear um but what's the latest on that and so i guess when we talked that time that was before uh, the governor and DOT announced some some expansions to 65, but obviously not, you know, the whole road. But kind of give your pitch for that, you know, um, expansion of 65, why it's so important, why you've made that a priority. Yeah, I mean, so first, I mean, I think um, I've told you this before, but I'll make sure all your listeners know. So, you know, and this is a broader conversation about infrastructure, really, where I'd like to talk about this and where I think our state needs to go. But, you know, the 65 thing, um, I'm a big sports fan. My kids are big sports fans. They play sports. And so I gave them for Christmas, they got Auburn, Kentucky basketball tickets at Rupp Arena. And uh, so we went to Rupp Arena. We were coming back from the ball game, And you leave Kentucky, get on the Tennessee line, going on 65. And in Tennessee, they were finishing up construction on six laning, three lanes each way, 65 from the state line to Nashville. And so that got me thinking, why have we not done that in Alabama? And talking to road builders and talking to people in the industry, engineers, they said, oh, well, Tennessee's worked on this 10 or 15 years ago. They've had a plan. They drew down a lot of federal money, um, you know, and they actually were thinking ahead and, um, you know, and in doing that, it started getting me to think, well, okay, why have we not done that in Alabama? And to be honest, I think it's um, a lack of failed leadership and DOT, if I'm just being fully transparent on this, and the fact that this should have been planned, you know, many ministra- administrations ago, and 65 is our main artery. Um, but it's really a broader conversation than that about how we need to plan ahead and how infrastructure, it shouldn't matter who's in office, you know, what are our top priorities? What are our top needs? And then let's actually, as a state, plan ahead, get the funding, get the commitments from the feds and, you know, get that done. And I think what's frustrating, you know, they're doing the Beltline in Birmingham. I mean, that's a good example of planning ahead. Why they haven't done that on 65 long range, uh, you know, this should have been done 10 years ago, you know, and it doesn't matter where I go in the state. The number one issue I've ever worked on is 65. And I didn't plan it to me. It was just a common sense thing of, okay, if other states can do this, why have we not done this? And then in looking at it, it's really just failed leadership at DOT over multiple administrations. But I mean, I really put the blame on John Cooper on this. He's been there so long, you know, he should have you know, presented a plan and, you know, we should have been chipping away because let's be honest to, you know, six lane 65, it's not going to be done in a year. This is going to take more than likely 10 to 15 years to get done. And 
it's the type thing that if other states are doing it, then the question is, why can Alabama not? And we certainly can. And so I think on that, you know, certainly it's, in my opinion, the number one need in the state. But then, you know, you get into the question of, okay, you know, we're, we're not a rich state, right? I mean, and so we've got to make sure we leverage and pull down as much federal dollars as we can. And to me, if you're talking about, you know, we're going to invest, you know, 1.3, some people are saying it's going to be more than that, potentially maybe 1.5 on the, you know, Southwest Alabama corridor down there on 43. You know, if you start talking about spending 1.3 to $1.5 billion of all state money and what that's going to potentially do to us from a bonding capacity standpoint, um, you know, it's just not a wise decision, right? I mean, there's a lot of other needs in our state. Not that that project doesn't have merit, but that project needs to have federal dollars for it to really be considered and for us to do the whole thing. If we end up following through with that and spending all state money, I think it's a huge mistake that'll hamstring our state for decades. Because when you start looking at bonding capacity, I mean, it's going to be a 20-year bond and you know, the amount of money that we're continuing to rack up from a debt service is really going to hamstring us. So to me, it's a bigger discussion about what are the top priorities in the state? What are the, you know, I guess, most important needs in the state? And then let's make sure, let's start getting those prioritized and get a plan for infrastructure that's not just a six-month or a year plan, that's a, you know, 10-year plan. And let's knock that out. Thank you. I know, for, I know Mary wants to ask about, um, I know Mary's going to ask about uh, the corridor. West Alabama corridor, but let me follow up on that real quick. You mentioned uh, Director Cooper. What have your conversations been? Have you talked to Director Cooper or the governor about the, the differences you have in terms of priorities and what, what have those conversations been like? Yeah, I mean, so as far as, I mean, the governor, we've talked with some of their staff about that and mentioned it to the governor just in passing. As far as Director Cooper, I mean, I do not have a great relationship right now. And so with him and have it for a while. And to be honest, I mean, he's just a complete jerk in how he deals with people. And it's one of the reasons, you know, I felt that, you know, he's not worthy of the position he's in. And it's not just me, right? It's across the board, uh, the way he deals with people. I don't think is, you know, he has the attitude or the heart of a public servant. And so had not talked to Director Cooper. And I think what I'm trying to do is get and, you know, to be honest, to dive into all this stuff on ALDOT and the federal funding. You know, I've got files and files of stacks. You know, we're going in this. But before I sit down with the governor and say, hey, this is kind of what we're looking at. And there's a, it's not just me, Todd. There's a lot of people. Industry is concerned. Business leaders are concerned. Because we don't need to hamstring ourselves from just putting all our money, state resources into a project in Southwest Alabama. You know, if we're going to spend, if we could spend maybe two or three hundred million of state dollars and draw down the rest federal dollars in that project, you know, instead of getting done in five or six years, maybe it takes 10 to 15, but the feds are picking up a big part of that. You know, that makes a lot more sense from a fiscal standpoint than the state paying 100 percent of that. So. On the on the West Corridor project, just I think everybody's probably aware, but that's the proposed expansion of 43 from Tuscaloosa to the coast. 
Um, and the the proposal that LDOT is is working with would use rebuild Alabama, the the 2019 gas tax, would take a up to 50% of the state's revenue from that gas tax increase and put it towards a bond for that project. And that is allowed under under the 2019 law, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. And, and my next question would be, does that law need to be changed? I mean, is anybody well, thinking? I mean, I think it's a bigger question than just that specific project, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if I was anywhere else in the state, if I was Tuscaloosa, if I was Birmingham, if I was any of the areas in Northwest Alabama, if I was Huntsville, if I was Marshall, DeKalb, Jackson, Etowah County, if I was Anniston, if I was Auburn, if I was, you know, the Wiregrass, right? If I was Montgomery, I would be like, what are we doing? Well, we're going to tie up and, you know, Mary, I think it's going to be closer to, you know, 70, 80% when this project's actually done of the potential revenue that's tied up. And I guess what I'm saying is, is that really the top priority right now when we can, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, you look at Huntsville, the congestion there, when you look at 65, the issues there, when you look at people, you know, get off 65, go into the coast to Baldwin, you know, county, can we really, you know, can people get there um, in a way? And have we really invested as a state to help people get to the beach quicker and more efficient? You know, um, do we need to expand, you know, from the, from I-10 there to 65, you know, on the Baldwin Beach Expressway, potentially you know, have it to take pressure off of 59 there? Yes, we do, right? So, I mean, I could list probably 20 other projects that to me make a lot more sense from a business standpoint and a return on investment for the state. And it really goes back to a business principle. You know, it would be like you've got healthy parts of your businesses that are growing. You've got to continue to invest in that or you're going to stall growth. The same thing applies in government. If we've got areas of our community or cities that are growing and we're not investing in there to stay ahead of the growth, it's going to stall growth. Mm-hmm. And so what, it's really frustrating to me that, you know, we're looking at spending this amount of money in an area that we're probably not going to see that greater return. And so I think the solution there is, okay, we're going to dedicate some state dollars, but let's really look hard at what federal dollars are available there. Okay. So what, I mean, because this whole project, it's kind of out of the legislature's hands at this point, unless there's, I mean, what what can you do at this point to, to reel that in? I mean, it doesn't sound like you're exactly sweet talking Mr. Cooper at this point. Yeah, I'm not going to. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I think uh, so. I think there's a lot of things we can do, right? We appropriate money. Um, certainly, to your point, if we wanted to, you could go back in on the rebuild and, you know, put certain checks in on that, right? I mean, that would maybe potentially not tie up all your dollars for one region. And I think any area should want that. Um, I think you could, you know, potentially stall. I mean, Governor Ivey is in their administration, certainly in there, but I mean, you know, there's going to be other administrations in the future. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, the, the more this stuff gets drug out, the, um, the less likely it is not less likely the project will still go on. And I think the project needs to happen, but I think we also need to be just a wise steward of our state's resources and make sure we're drawing down federal funds. And so I think, the longer more attention, what I'm trying to draw attention to this and make sure leaders in our state wake up, 
And they realize that, hey, while this project certainly has merit, it's not the wisest thing for our state. And that's nothing against Director Cooper. That's nothing against the people in Southwest Alabama. That's nothing against Governor Ivey. This is just about common sense and trying to do what's best for Alabama. Got it. Well, let's switch gears to a, another topic. I know you're big on and that's school choice. Um, of course, a lot of people are, are big on school choice, but I guess the devil's in the details. Um, you've come out saying Alabama needs to go bigger on school choice. What what does that really mean? What what do you think specifically we might see from the legislature? Or maybe a better question for you is what kind of bill or plan could you get behind? Well, we'll have to be in there to to make to earn your support. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, first let me say this. I think we need school choice in Alabama. <clears throat> I think it's something that will certainly move the needle. I don't want to mislead people and people think that this is a silver bullet that's going to solve all our problems in Alabama. It will solve problems in certain areas, but you take an area like Marshall County that I'm from, you know, there's really, there's one little small private school you're fortunate to have a lot of good public schools here. I don't think you're going to see, you know, school choice do a lot in a place like Marshall County. Um, you take an area like Montgomery that's got a lot of failing schools. Uh, school choice could be a game changer there. You take an area like Mobile, it could be a game changer. Um, potentially in the Black Belt in certain areas, it could be a game changer. So, you know, my thoughts on school choice is this. It really boils down to the parent deciding what's best for the child. And I think that's real important. A parent knows what's best for the child, whether it's, you know, what public school they're going to go to. And I want to say this, it doesn't need to be, we're not just talking about, you know, I think we need to have public school choice as well. Meaning that, you know, I was fortunate and when we lived in, um, we lived in the county of Marshall County, but we were in the Gunnersville um, jurisdiction, but Gunnersville had a program where if you lived outside, you could pay a fee to go in. I think ARAB has the same thing. Um, it varies. It might have been like $300 you could pay um, to go into. But there's some school districts are closed, right? Where if you live outside the city limits or outside of that school district, you're not allowed to go there. I'm talking about public schools here. So I think public school choice is important because um, parents can decide, okay, I want my child to go to this school for whatever reasons, right? And there could be all kinds of different reasons behind that. But then I also think the private school choice, and this is where it gets into having, you know, an ESA type thing where you've got your set of money and you can decide, okay, I really want to go to this school. And, you know, and so in that number that's been thrown out there has been around like $6,500, right? And so you think about that and, you know, I would say that like our kids go to a private school now. They go to Whitesburg Christian School in um, Huntsville. And, you know, our reason for leaving the public school system was directly tied to the pandemic and the lack of academic performance in the public school they were in. And it was frustrating to me because so many kids got behind during the pandemic that in the classroom my boys were in, they were really teaching to the lowest common denominator. And in that instance, they were in sixth grade. A lot of the kids in that grade, they came back and told me, you know, we're testing on third and fourth grade level. So obviously the teachers got to spend a lot of time with those students that are behind to get them brought up. Well, what happens is the kids at the top that are in that same classroom, they're not getting pushed. They're not getting. And so for us, you know, I wanted, you know, my kids to be pushed from an academic standpoint. And um, 
felt like I think before the pandemic, they they were. I felt during the pandemic, a lot of public schools, to be honest, were in a tough spot. So I don't necessarily blame the school because it was a tough situation coming out of that. Um, and so for us, the best thing was we were able to send them to a school that's focused on academics and it cost around between nine to 10 grand a year. And so if I was able to get, you know, unfortunately, we can't afford that. Um, you know, been successful in business and had businesses that allow me to be able to send my kids there. But that's not necessarily the case for everybody in our state. And so when you look at that, you know, if they were able to get $6,500 and let's say the tuition was and in some places that would cover the tuition. But let's just say it was 9000 was the tuition. There's a lot of families that could come up with $2,500, but they might not be able to come up with that whole 9000 And again, it's up to the parent on what they want to do. You know, do they want to stay in the public school? Do they maybe want to go to a different public school if there's room and availability and um, capacity there where they could take them? Or do they want to go to a private school? Or maybe they the homeschool option could be best, right? I mean, and so I think it gets back to letting the parent decide. But if you look at other states and I don't have any data right now, but I've read all kinds of reports. I mean, it certainly helps. So I think it's probably, you know, 10 to 15% of the issue in Alabama is school choice. And I think certainly if we can address that through a bill that allows parents to decide, I think it's going to have to be phased in um, just so for the financial impact on the ETF. But I think it could have a real impact in Alabama and specifically in, you know, some of these areas where we've had historically failing schools. In the spring session, we had the the Price Act, the, and I think it did have sort of a phase-in component as well. One of the, the sticking points, and obviously there's going to be opposition to this, you know that, but one of the sticking points, even with some Republican leaders in the state house, was accountability and wanting some sort of testing mechanism for students who receive these scholarships. That wasn't in the Price Act as we saw it. Does, does some sort of testing or accountability measure need to be in a bill that you would support in the spring or what should that look like? You know, I think at the end of the day, it's going to come down to the parents are going to know what's best for their child. And I think right now, you know, some kids are just stuck in a system that they can't, they have no choice, right? And I think when you look at that, that's not a good situation. So for me, I think the parent can decide what's best. And if they don't like the test scores, or if they don't feel like their students are learning, you know, at whatever level they think they should, then they can move and decide, you know, where they want to go. So I don't think it necessarily has to be part of what I would support. Um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, parents are going to do what's best for their child. I really believe that every parent loves their child. They're going to try to do what's best for them. And, um, from an academic standpoint, um, you know, I think they can decide what's best. And, and then there's other things to consider other than just uh, academics, right? Um, and so I think when you look at that, the parent can decide what's best. And I think that's really what this boils down to and, uh, you know, why it's been successful in other states. Because I think when, you know, I think right now, and you've heard the phrase that, you know, students are trapped by zip code. Mm -hmm. um, but I think if a, if a student really is trapped um, in a failing school and they can't go to another public school because we're not allowing that and they can't afford a private school, that's a sad situation and something that we need to fix. Well, also on the education front, this last session, um, the legislature put you in charge of a, a uh, your office in charge of a capital projects fund. It was, you know, we, we had this surplus of education revenue. Um, you know, some of it went to pay raises, some of it went into savings and everything, but they wanted to specifically focus on um, capital infrastructure for schools. Um, 
and said that the lieutenant governor's office would, uh, you know, administer these funds. So I, I was curious um, what, is what it? that's going to look like. I mean, it's something like $375 million. And, and I guess they're applying, you know, school superintendents will apply to your office for that. All right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, first honored that the legislature had confidence in us to administer and carry out this program, a huge responsibility. And, you know, we're excited to try to help students and help school systems in our state with that. It's a $179 million grant program that's for K through 12 public schools. So it has to be a K through 12 public school. Um, it's the first time anything like this has been created. Uh, kind of the uh, parameters in the law dealt with capital improvements. So anything type capital projects, uh, deferred maintenance, um, it could be technology improvements, uh, school security enhancements, um, or any existing debt they have. And so the idea is that, you know, this would be a way, um, because the economy was doing so well for us to help school systems with capital projects. And so um, we created, uh, we worked with a, a company where there's an online portal that they're you know going to and this technology is great and they've got to have a letter of support from their house member and their senate member um, for the grant they're approving and then um, there's all kind of different criteria there and then there's also a um, you know depending on the school's financial situation the amount of tax revenue they have come in there's a matching component that goes anywhere from you know the poor schools in the state would be at zero percent um, up to, I believe it's like 33% match is the highest, right? So your Mountain Brooks or something like that would be, you know, on that end. And so that would be, um, you know, how that works. And then um, the uh, the technology we're using on this is really great. Um, it's the same company that did a lot of um, the ARPA funds throughout the country. And so everything will be handled digitally, um, you know, where there's a copy of everything that's submitted, and, uh, you know, it's just going to make it really easy to be able to process. And then, you know, our goal is to hopefully have all these grants out by um, the process. Um, the grants have to be in by the end of October. And then, um, you know, we're hoping to have these grants to the school, you know, by Christmas. So I mean, that's I know, it's, it's five million up to five million dollars per school. So that could that's a significant amount of money. Okay. That's right. And I mean, and I'll tell you all this. I haven't told anybody this yet. So you want a little of uh inside information on this for your Ooh, podcast always yeah <laughs> yeah i mean so for me the first thing i'm going to try to target was the school's um systems that got targeted by the tornadoes right because i feel like that was um i believe that was selma if i remember right and um you know they they really got you know hit hard and i think they need you know in my opinion you know that's the school system in the state that needs the most help so we want to try to make sure we get them first. And then we're just going to go down and kind of look at the grants and, you know, assess them based on need and, um, you know, kind of their situation. What all, I mean, you know, it's going to be, you know, all the documents they provided. And, um, you know, the thing we like about it too is that a House member and Senate member has to uh, sign off. And obviously, you know, we're not going to be able to fund all the grants um, and we're not going to be able to fund all the grants at the amount they want. But we're hoping mm -hmm. that this is a way we can, uh, you know, certainly help a lot of schools in our state um, and you know, it's just kind of a unique time that our economy is doing well and we're able to do this. So we're thankful. Gotcha. Thank you for running us through that. Let me switch gears on you again. Um, workforce development, your, your office is very involved in that. We've got a very low unemployment rate, but a higher than national average labor participation rate. 
Um, can can you talk to us a little bit about what what y'all are working on and what, if anything, you might be pushing in the 2024 session related to uh, workforce development? Yeah, no, thanks for the question. This is something that's one of my main passions, and I really hope uh, we can continue to get students trained for you know, the jobs of today and also the jobs of tomorrow. I think that's so important. Um, you know, when I think about workforce development, to me, it's common sense. It's what jobs are we going to need in an area where that student lives within a 30, 60 mile radius and understanding the data that 65% of the students in the state end up not getting a two or four year degree. And we know that most of those students that are in that category end up staying within a 30 mile radius. So let's identify the jobs that we know are going to be, you know, region by region. What jobs are available? What jobs are we training? And then we're going to say, okay, there's a deficit there. So let's make sure we train more. And I think one of the things, you know, community college has really stepped up to the plate and they've done a great job. And our four-year institutions do a good job. And, you know, I've been encouraged by going to a lot of workforce centers uh, that are community colleges. And I've been encouraged by our dual enrollment. And we're going to continue to push both of those. I think that's important. We're going to continue to push, you know, obviously higher ed. That's important. But one thing that I think, you know, is real important that we've got to solve is the K through 12. And, you know, I'm going to give you an example of um, down in Baldwin County. And I really think this can be a model for every county. And certainly if we can't do every county, every region. Um, but they've got a school there called Baldwin Preparatory Academy. And it's going to be for incoming 10th, 11th and 12th graders. They're going to have around 1,200 students there. And these students will just go to that school in 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. And they're getting trained for, for specific trades. And the idea in this school is, you know, is it possible to take these students that, you know, are ready to get trained for welding, um, you know, becoming a mechanic? Uh, there's cosmetology there. There's healthcare nursing type stuff there. Um, all kind of different stuff, right? Uh, machine shop, uh, learning how to be machinist. And so these different trades. But I think what we really need to do is go back to that population I was talking about, the 65% that are not getting a two or four year degree. Now let's go back. Okay. If we can get our K through 12, you know, instead of focused on ACT scores and instead of focused on, because I can tell you if somebody owns a business, I really don't, I've never asked anybody what their ACT score is ever. I mean, you know, and so I care about, you know, are they going to show up on time? Are they, you know, do they understand just basic math and science? You know, can they, you know, in the construction business, you know, do they understand plumbing? Do they understand, you know, the electricians? Do they understand electrical stuff? And so I mm -hmm. think, you know, from that, if we can get our 10th, 11th and 12th graders that we know are not going to go to a two or four year college, if we can get them trained to where when they graduate high school, we spent three years training them for a specific trade that they have an interest in. You know, there's around 55 to 60,000 high school students a year that are graduating um, high school every year in Alabama. That's our workforce. That's our workforce of the future. And you're going to see a huge focus on potentially, you know, taking that group of you know, students and really getting them trained for the jobs because I, it doesn't matter where I go in the state and I travel all over the state often, right? I mean, every week I'm somewhere different speaking, talking to business owners, trying to find out how, how to help solve problems. But the one thing I continue to hear is, Will, we need help getting people trained. And to me, the easiest pool of people to train 
not that there's not other groups we need to train, but is our high school students. And, you know, that we know, and like, I think back to when I was in high school, the question was, how was I doing on my ACT? Where was I going to college? Well, it worked out great for me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a lot of students that I mentioned aren't going to do that. But then I think back to how did I learn? I learned to weld in shop class at Boaz High School. Mm-hmm. I learned to, you know, all kind of stuff about, you know, using saws, drills. I mean, I built a shooting house, right, out of wood, um, you know, in shop class. And these are all skills that are important. We learned how to wire up lights, right? I mean, and these are skills that certainly are transferable into the private sector and that are important. I think also understanding STEM and technology is going to be part of this. Um, You know, obviously, used to where mechanics, you know, or even on the welding side, you know, you you had to do a lot of welding. We're still going to need welders. But now there's a lot of machines and robots that do welding. So we got to make sure these students, you know, when I'm talking about, and this is where stuff's going to change with technology, um, you know, one estimates that 40% of our jobs will be displaced in the next 10 years because of technology. And so with that, you know, making sure they understand how to operate on the robots, right, and understand how to operate the computers that operate the robots, you know, that's going to be real important. But to me, it just boils down to this. What are the jobs out there? And are we training somebody to do those jobs in K through 12, community college, AIDT, or, you know, our four-year institutions? And if we're not, then we need to fill that void. So that's what we're working on. I had a uh, dream about the ACT the other night, you know, that, that like (laughs) weird dream a lot of people have about, you know, Oh, I'm not prepared for a test. And yeah, so that was, I'm I'm glad you reminded me of that. Um, But as much as we're talking about the future and like training high school students and everything, there's also just a current workforce problem. And I'm curious to ask you about this, both from a public official and a business owner, like you mentioned, because I keep, I keep hearing about the problem of childcare, right? That it's just, it's very expensive. Um, In many cases, they're not available. I know that there was a bill this last session, I think Senator Gudger, um, about um, maybe incentivizing businesses through tax um, credits and things like that to create their own child care centers or contract with others and just kind of maybe loosening restrictions on that to encourage it. Um, so I'm curious, that it, have you ever run into that problem in your business that, you know, oh, an employee has a hard time acquiring childcare, or if as you travel across the state, you've also heard that brought up as an issue as a barrier to somebody getting into the workforce. Yeah, no doubt. It's a huge barrier. I think in any region, any part of the state dealing with childcare and uh, what's happened is childcare has just become really expensive. And when people are trying to access, okay, this is what I'm going to make versus this is what I'm going to have to spend in childcare. Um, sometimes that's tough decisions for people. And um, so I think certainly anything we can do to help with the child care problem, whether it's, you know, tax credits for the businesses, um, potentially having more options. Uh, you know, I'm a big supporter of pre-K. Uh, I want to have pre-K um, in every part of the state, having summer learning programs potentially for students um, in our school systems. You know, these are all things that can help um, people that have children in the workforce potentially. And so I think we got to think outside the box. And I also think we got to be realistic on, you know, if we want to improve our test scores and if we want to make sure that our students are reading, you know, and writing on grade level 
Okay, then we got to make sure that there's going to take some extra time. And I think one of the things we could do is there's a gap in the summer where, you know, this is talking about, um, you know, children that would be in school age children. Right. Um, and so, you know, in the summer, it's tough on the workforce because now, OK, you know, what do I do with my children all day, especially if they're not old enough to take care of themselves? Well, you know, if there's a way we could have more summer programs and I think we're you know doing some of this as a state, but really looking at, you know, potentially. Um, things to get students caught up. And we're going to see a benefit because that ought to help our test scores go up, right? And um, so I think that's an option. But there's a lot of different ideas I've heard on this, Todd, that I you know, think are certainly worth looking at. But I think it's something moving forward and you know, the new economy that we're going to have to continue to do. The other thing I'll say that's helped this is remote working, right? And people being able to work from home is actually... Um, allowed some people to get back in the workforce that maybe weren't before. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, so, you know, that is one good thing out of the pandemic on the workforce side is that now there's a lot more remote working and with that, people are able to be at home with their children. And that's a that's a perk. It is, it well, is. Well, speaking, yeah. of, speaking of working folks, how, what has been the reaction um, from folks you've heard from about the reduction in grocery tax. I know it was only the one cent we're kind of phasing this in and, and maybe they're going to go, you know, for the, for the full four one day, but have you heard from folks throughout the state about, about any kind of difference that's making? Yeah, I think uh, people right now are struggling. I think uh, reality is we have really high inflation interest rates are going out the roof. I mean, you think about 8% interest rate right now. Um, you know, I think seven and a half right now on mortgages, that's really high, right? You look at just inflation and the cost of, you know, what goods are costing people. Um, I can tell you the response on the grocery tax has been really positive. I mean, and it's been, you know, when I talk about that, usually, you know, uh, people clap, you know, and they're very happy about that because I think, any reduction in what people are paying is huge. And I think, you know, saving somebody, you know, three or $400 a year, whatever the number is, you know, even if it's a hundred, you know, dollars a year is a big deal. And, um, you know, when you look at um, the fact that they can now use that money for something else and because it's expensive to live. And so I think people are certainly appreciative of that. And I think, you know, that's part of, you know, our job as government as, um, you know, uh, my thought process on government is, you know, if government can, you know, if revenues grow, then we got to find a way to reduce the tax burden on the people in Alabama. And I think that's one of the things that makes us really competitive as a state is, you know, the fact we do have low taxes. And I think that's important. And uh, obviously, we've got to fund government, you know, and have fundamental services. But we also, you know, anytime we're able to give money back to people, I'm all for that. And, um, you know, was glad to kind of lead the charge on the grocery tax. And uh, a lot of people didn't think it could be done. I mean, that's something that, you know, I think, you know, the state's been wanting to do for 20, 30 years. And we just haven't been in the fiscal shape, to be honest, where we could do it. But now we are. And part of the reason is the amount of new people that are moving to our state. You know, I mean, I, and the fact that we're getting higher wages now in our jobs. And so our economy and we're in the best fiscal shape we've ever been in as a state. And even in a somewhat of a downturn right now, a little bit, our budgets are still continuing to grow. So, um, you know, I think doing the tax cut was the right right thing. Um, 
you know, I think continuing to look at other ways we can reduce the tax burden on people, you know, makes a lot of sense. So, um, but I think certainly people in Alabama, you know, it boils down to, I mean, they're struggling to get by right now because the cost of goods are so high and everything. Mm-hmm. How, and I know your office is part of a, a continuing conversation on that other, uh, the other two cents on the, the, the grocery tax as well, correct? Yeah, I mean, I think the goal is to get it all off. I mean, if y'all remember, that's when um, I started this was to do, you know, the entire, you know, state portion of the grocery tax, which is four, um, four cents. And I think the goal is to eliminate that. I think the other you have a, a potential timeline on that or are we not there yet? I mean, I think what we want to do first is make sure the other cent comes off. It looks like it's going to um, and this next session. It'll, you know, it's the um, it's based on how the economy does. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after that, I think um, then we look at, OK, you know, what's going on in the economy? Because, I mean, we got to make sure we have the um, receipts continue to come in. And so I can't predict what's going to go on in the future. And so I want to wait and you know, let this other cent come off and then see where we're at. And if we're continuing to grow, then I think we take the other two cents off. Gotcha. OK, well, speaking of the future. Can I ask about your personal future? Um, 2026, you've already racked up from your friend, uh, Mr. Ledbetter, one endorsement uh, for for governor. When when might we have an announcement from you on on that? And and what um what what's your thinking at this point? Sure. Yeah. What, what Mary means to say is, are you running for governor? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get asked that a lot. Uh, so, um, yeah, and I, I need to really thank my good friend, Nathaniel Ledbetter, for that, right? So um, I was up at his 4th of July um, thing that I go to every year. It's up in Henniger, Potato Festival. They have a big parade. They do a huge breakfast. It's a lot of fun. Me and Kendall and the kids go, and uh, we were in the parade and toss out candy. It's a 4th of July tradition I've had, I guess, every year since I've been um, in office. So even when I was in the house, I used to go to that. So um, it's a lot of fun. And, yeah, he kind of caught me off guard and that, you know, we all get up there and talk about how the state's doing and um, just kind of give a brief update. And then Nathaniel's like, hey, I'm going to be the first one to endorse, uh, you know, Will for governor. And I was like, whoa, didn't see that, but honored that, you know, he thinks I would do a good job there. So to answer your question, I mean, for me, um, I haven't even been in re-election of lieutenant governor for my second term a year. Um, So what I'm focused on is doing a good job as lieutenant governor, solving problems. You know, our goal when we came in as lieutenant governor was to be the most active lieutenant governor in the state's history. And I think we've accomplished that so far. Uh, We want to keep that up. And that's on, you know, being active, going to communities, that's being active, being engaged in issues, that's being active and getting stuff done. And, uh, you know, when we get involved in an issue, it normally passes and becomes law. And so we want to continue to make a difference for our state. And then for me, the timeline on that, um, you know, would be something like, uh, you know, you're looking at May or June, depending on when the primary would be, I'm not exactly sure, uh, you know, 26 would be the election for the primary. And so a year out from that, you could start raising money. So May or June of 25, I would think by January of 25, you know, I would need to make a decision on that, what I was going to do. So um, I've said before, I really don't have an interest in going to DC. You know, my heart's in Alabama and I, I got a lot of respect for Senator Tuberville and Senator Britt 
and the work they're doing in D.C. and our congressional delegation and thankful for them. But, you know, I, I really think uh, with just kind of my background, I would be more suited for executive branch and think we could get a lot of great things done in our state. Um, but I, I would expect, you know, from a timeline in my standpoint, would be sometime in, you know, early part of 25. It always gets sooner, doesn't it? It never, it never really, except we, we can't even let you get a year into re-election. But. Yeah, I mean, but like I said, right now we're focused on doing a good job um, and, you know, real encouraged. I mean, everywhere we go, there's people that want us to run for governor. There's people that are excited about the future. But, you know, we're not focused on that right now on the governor's race. We're focused on trying to be the best lieutenant governor the state's ever had. And if I can do that, then I think, you know, there might potentially – you know, be a door open for that down the road, but I got to first do a good job where I'm at. Well, we have taken more of your time than we said we would. So thank you, uh, Governor, for coming on the show and um, hope you have you back on sometime soon. Yeah. Well, no, thank you. I appreciate both of y'all and um, I look forward to being on in the future. Thank you, Governor. Appreciate you. Well, Mary, that was fun. That was. Yeah. That was a lot of good information. That was a a wide ranging conversation. It was, I mean, um, and yeah, I I know it's like a little early to be asking that question, but it's really not in the grand scheme of things about running for governor because, um, he certainly is very active and present and, you know, um, doing the kind of things he would do if you were planning a, a governor, uh, campaign. And, um, so I think it was totally fair to ask that. And, um, of course he gave you his diplomatic response right? right. because, you know, you don't want to put your hat in too early. Um, but how about his comments about, um, infrastructure and specifically John Cooper? I mean, yeah, I mean, he's pretty direct about that. And, um, I mean, and I do think, you know, when, when he's talking about infrastructure, I mean, those are, those are governor conversations. Those are, I'm going to fix the roads conversations. Um, but yeah, the, the Cooper stuff, I mean, it's, it's no secret that there's been some, some tension there for, for quite a while. Uh, so that, but yeah, that's, he did not mix words. Also thought, you know, his, he had, he was candid about the workforce stuff. I mean, I yeah. tried to get specific on the whole childcare thing. And cause I just keep hearing that. Right. And, uh, he, yeah. He, me he, too. And that's, I mean, I, that would be just speaking personally when both my children were in daycare and we were not going to like the elite daycares, we were going to the, Hey, they'll get a decent education and be safe here. Daycares. It was when both of them were in $425 a week, a and week, a week. And if you make minimum wage, you don't make $400 a week. Um, so, I mean, that it's a huge investment. Yeah. And so it just becomes a choice. Like he talked about it. To, you know, if you can't. Right. Yeah. And luckily, you know, my you husband. Make enough for that to be an option. Right. Yeah. And my husband and I have decent jobs. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we're, you know, able to, able to make that work. But yeah, some people just can't. And we, you know, you need people. Working, you know, not everybody makes, some people still make minimum wage. So 
it, it is, it's a tough choice. So yeah, I'm, I'm real curious to see what these continued conversations about um, getting people more options or incentivizing daycare or just, just giving people a break on that would be interesting. You asked a good question. Going back to infrastructure, you asked a good question that I, that I think we're going to hear more um, as the session approaches, and that is amending that rebuild law. Yeah. You know, if, if the legislature um, really does have a problem with the whole bonding thing, um, uh, the amount the state is willing to bond out on rebuild projects, then all they do have to do is amend the law. Of course, she would have to sign it, but right. um, the governor. And this is her project. I mean, um, it's, it's, oh, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, look, laws get amended all the time, mm-hmm. but I have heard complaints about um, how, how much we're, we can leverage out. But sometimes you never know how, whether that's a critical mass or not, because just because one person complains about it doesn't mean there would be the votes to actually do something about it. So, but it, it was a good question. I'm, I'm curious to get others um, thoughts on that. Yeah, I'll be, I'll probably make some calls on that today. <laughs> um, but you know, in that, that West Alabama project, I mean, we have heard some, some concerns from, from lawmakers and contract review committee and, and others, but there's also support for it. I mean, I talked to just right. had a, a conversation with Senator Albritton, general fund chair. That's, you know, Kind of, I'm not sure it's actually in his district, but adjacent to his district. Yeah, he's supportive. It's, it's, yeah. He he wants to see that done. So there there are some supporters. Um, but yeah, it I mean what LDOT is doing is allowed under the bill. Um, you know, maybe they just didn't think that the or maybe lawmakers didn't think that they'd sink all that money into one project. Um, but yeah, it'll be I need to make some calls on that for sure. But you're right. The whole roads thing, um, 65, you know, he's kind of tapped into a frustration sure. that a lot of people have, especially, you know, you get on Facebook, get on Twitter. Yeah. Right. Now the, there's, a, the there's a whole like, yeah, anytime anybody's stuck on 65, you see all these pictures on social media and it's it's become a thing. Um, yeah, he's definitely tapped into some frustrations. But that's what good politicians do. So I definitely think it's a political thing. Um, but we are still limited on our in our resources. I mean, um, and I've asked folks before, like, did we, I asked him before, um, you know, did we go, did we not go far enough? Did rebuild, did that gas tax increase not go far enough? Do we need more resources? He, of course, said no, but that's the kind of questions that, that you ask when, you know, we don't we don't have the money to do everything. Mm-hmm. Right. The reason I kind of broke up is that's him calling me right now. <laughs> well, good. all right. Well, that's plenty. Um, appreciate Lieutenant Governor. Oh, by the way, I think most of our listeners understand this, but the reason why we say governor, we're talking to the lieutenant governor, is that's that's oh. like the formal technical way you're supposed to address the lieutenant governor. Yeah. Um, kind of like you would call a lieutenant general general. And so yeah. I wasn't getting ahead a, of myself in 2026. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so we're not like getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> we are just using the formal title, which is kind of weird. That's why you'll sometimes hear me yeah. just say Mr. Ainsworth or something like okay. that. It, yeah. That, that did re- take, that did take me some, 
getting used to um, back when when I first started. Yeah, but yeah, in the hallways when when Governor Ivy was Lieutenant Governor and she walked by, it was Governor, Governor, Governor. Right. Well, they so, still yeah. do it to Steve Windham, but uh, like, <laughs> but the one who would kept reminding everybody of that was Lucy Baxley. When Lucy Baxley was Lieutenant Governor, like. One of her like stump speech included the fact that you're supposed to address her as governor, which of course she intended to run for governor, which she did later. But right. that's where everybody started doing. Okay, okay, we get it. So, so anyway, just a little right. in the weeds aside. Um, by the way, hearing now that um, former state senator Roger Bedford has passed mm-hmm. away, he died, and um, th- you know for those who don't know, if maybe if you're new to Alabama politics, Roger Bedford was a giant. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, maybe with the, one of the most powerful Democrats for decades, um, mm-hmm. dominant in the legislature, ran for U.S. Senate one time. Uh, he had battled cancer. Uh, so we're uh, obviously, hearts go out to his family. And um, that's that's sad. He was one of when I when I started covering the state house in 2012. He was still representing uh, Northwest Alabama, and he was yeah, like you said, just a giant. So, um, condolences to his family. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Those were some some fun times uh, doing battle with with Roger. (laughs) Um, So, all right, Mary. Thanks for another good pod. Yeah, glad that that finally worked out with. Mr. Ainsworth. Yeah. All right. And with that, we'll call it a day and we'll see you next time. See you next time.